You're listening to a Roddenberry Podcast. This episode of Mission Log is sponsored by BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Mission Log today to get 10% off your first month with a licensed therapist. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Mission Log. This episode is also sponsored by Factor Meals. Head to factormeals.com slash missionlog50, that's the number five zero, and use code missionlog50 to get 50% off. That's code missionlog50 at factormeals.com slash missionlog50 to get 50% off. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, episode 514, Message in a Bottle. Welcome into another episode of Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Norman Lau. Each week on Mission Log, we take a look at each and every episode of Star Trek to see if they withstand the test of time and if they have any morals, meanings, or messages contained therein. And we are going to try something new for this episode. Computer, activate emergency podcast host program. Please state the nature of the podcast emergency. There's no emergency. I just wanted to see if this new Mark II podcast host program was working. Oh, I see. Summoning me at a whim, are you? You know, this podcasting equipment is expensive, and I can't just be expected to drop in at your beck and call. I suppose I'm expected to fill your ears with cleverly selected trivia and then segue into my astute yet comedic observations. Computer! End podcast host program. The real John will return with trivia in a moment, right after I tell you how to reach us. Mission Log is a conversation about Star Trek. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at Mission Log Pod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember your comments could be used on Mission Log or Engage on the Roddenberry YouTube channel. And now, here's the real John Champion with this week's trivia. Oh, thank goodness we got rid of that jerk. All right, message in a bottle. We have a story by Rick Williams, and I'm afraid the trail dries up after that bit of trivia because, as far as we know, this is Rick's only professional credit as a writer. But if he successfully pitched the story, it was up to Lisa Klink to shape it into a teleplay, and that's who gets the credit here. And Lisa's name is the only one with the credit, though there were contributions from the rest of the team, not the least of whom was Bob Picardo, who claims that he is the one who shaped some of the jokes in this outing, specifically the bit where one EMH says to the other, stop breathing down my neck. Yes, that was his. This was directed by Nancy Malone. Hey, do you remember way back in season three when we covered the episode Coda, the one where Janeway dies and her father tries to take her to the afterlife? Well, not really. It, it She wasn't really dead and he was just an alien. Well, that one was also directed by Nancy Malone. 
And she is part of a very small group of women who sat in the Star Trek director's chair up to this point. This is her second and final directorial gig for the franchise. But hopefully you remember that she had a very full resume directing multiple episodes of Melrose Place, Dynasty, Hotel, and many other shows during the 80s through the early 2000s. And that's not even to get into her longer resume as an actor starting out in the early 1950s and appearing as a regular on Naked City and The Long Hot Summer and a multitude of guest spots along the way. Nancy passed away in 2004. Let's meet our guest stars. We get a short couple of glimpses of someone on the other end of the communications relay who introduces himself as a Herogen. He's played by Tiny Ron, and I do love an ironic nickname. We've seen Tiny Ron many times before in all his seven-foot-tall glory, many times on DS9 as Mehardu, and uh, he'll be back with us again in his Herogen guise. Definitely listed in the credits here is Judson Scott as the Romulan commander, Rekar. You may recall that Judson did not get a credit for his rather prominent role as Joachim in The Wrath of Khan. But he did also get a credit for his other Star Trek outing in TNG's first season episode, Symbiosis. Most of us remember the shows like V and The Phoenix filled out his other sci-fi cred, along with guest appearances on Babylon 5, The X-Files, and more. Judson's on-screen credits stop in the early 2000s, and so far, this is the last of his Star Trek appearances. Another Romulan we get to know is Nivala, played by Valerie Wildman. While this is the only appearance on Star Trek so far for Valerie, she has been in front of the camera practically nonstop since she debuted in the 1983 film Splash. She's got a lot of feature film credits to her name, like My Blue Heaven, Mars Attacks, and Internal Affairs. On TV, she has guest starred all over the place and racked up impressive recurring roles on shows like Beverly Hills 90210, Dangerous Women, and more than a 100 appearances on Days of Our Lives. Finally, the EMH Mark II is played here by stand-up and comedic actor Andy Dick. Andy is well-known as a comedic actor, starting on TV in The Ben Stiller Show and gaining more widespread notoriety on news radio. He had his own show for a couple of seasons, The Andy Dick Show, and he continued to guest star and make feature film appearances through the 90s and 2000s. He's also a notorious guest on Comedy Central's Roasts. Now, we'd be remiss if we didn't point out that Andy has had a number of run-ins with legal issues and accusations of inappropriate behavior personally and professionally. Kind of goes with the territory, and you can read much more about that on his Wikipedia page. More recently, Andy shows up in TV shows, short films, and as a voice actor, often playing himself or a version of himself. While he admitted that he wasn't a deeply knowledgeable Star Trek fan at the time of this show, he had expressed interest in the challenge of acting on a series like Star Trek to none other than Brandon Braga, who helped usher along his appearance. Communicating with the Alpha Quadrant? That's good news. The bad news? The first hail you get is from someone who's been trying to reach you about your Starship's extended warranty. 
Prologue. Chakotay and Bolana are having a walking conversation down a corridor. Well, more like a deluge of Bolana's diatribe regarding her disdain towards Seven of Nine. Bolana cares not for Seven's arrogant and dismissive attitude, but Chakotay has had enough and sternly suggests to Bolana to act like the senior officer she is. Suddenly, Seven of Nine overcomes, orders Chakotay to report to the astrometrics lab, Point Torres. Along the way, Chakotay runs into the captain, who has also been ordered by Seven to astrometrics. Game, set, and match. Torres. However, when Janeway and Chakotay ask Seven why they have been summoned, she informs them that she has detected a ship that might be of interest to them. And to their bewilderment, Janeway and Chakotay stare at a ship on the astrometrics monitor. A Starfleet ship. In the Alpha Quadrant. Act 1. Seven explains that she has been experimenting with increasing the range of the astrometric sensors using a nearby cluster of abandoned but functioning alien relay stations. The unidentified Starfleet ship is located at the furthest point of the furthest relay station's Wi-Fi range extender near the outermost edges of the Alpha Quadrant. Chakotay wonders if they can use the relay station to send a message to Starfleet, and Seven confirms it's doable provided they transmit the message in the next 41 minutes before the ship leaves sensor range. Janeway orders her command staff to make it so. After fine-tuning their interlink frequencies to produce the correct carrier wave for the relay station, the captain attempts to send her first message. However, it is reflected back at Voyager because the signal strength is too weak and degrades rapidly as it travels through the network. Tom suggests using a stronger signal, to which Bellana thinks that a holographic data stream could work. Holographic data, as in the doctor. Bellana rushes to sickbay, deactivates the doctor mid-experiment, grabs his mobile emitter, and reactivates him in astrometrics. Janeway explains the situation to the doctor, who proclaims he is more than up to the task of being turned into a data stream and transmitted through an abandoned relay station across thousands of light years only to be reconstituted on an unknown Starfleet vessel. When he rematerializes in what appears to be a Starfleet sickbay, the doctor is informed by the ship's computer that he is on board the Federation starship Prometheus. However, something is amiss. After getting his bearings and scanning his surroundings, the doctor discovers scorch marks on the walls and several crewmen lying on the floor covered in plasma burns. The doctor manages to revive an ensign who is barely alive and with his dying breath utters that Romulans have taken over the ship. Act 2. The computer informs the doctor that 27 Romulans are on board and there are no surviving Starfleet crew members. Attempting to access further tactical information exceeds his security clearance, but he gains access to the general information about the Prometheus. It is an experimental prototype designed for long-range tactical missions armed with state-of-the-art weaponry, ablative armor plating, regenerative shields, and something called multi-vector attack mode. The rest is classified, Starfleet's way of saying, you don't have clearance. On the bridge, confirming the dying ensign's words, Prometheus has been taken over by Romulans. The Romulan first officer, Navala, informs her commander, Rakar, that they are being pursued by another Federation starship. Rakar orders the engagement of the untested multi-vector attack mode, much to Navala's chagrin. The ship's lighting turns blue, counts down from 10 to 1 for auto-separation, and it separates into three vehicles surrounding the pursuing Federation ship and destroying it. Despite Rakar deeming it a successful test, 
Navala tends to an injured crewman and takes him to sickbay where she finds the doctor. He explains that he was immediately activated when she arrived and insists that she can either deactivate him or help save her comrade's life, a duty he is sworn to even for a Romulan. Realizing he needs assistance to treat his patient and gain access to the ship's information, he activates this ship's EMH, who appears not only younger, but far less follically challenged. Act 3. The Doctor's first encounter with this ship's EMH, who identifies himself as Mark II, is a bit tenuous at first. Mark II assumes that the Doctor is an intruder and almost alerts the entire ship, not knowing that the Prometheus has been taken over by Romulans. The Doctor quickly gets Mark II up to speed on why he's here and what has transpired with him and Voyager in the past four years when they were lost in the Delta Quadrant. In kind, Mark II confirms that the Romulans are not at war with the Federation, nor involved in the Dominion War, which, to the Doctor, is a long story. Needless to say, the Doctor and Mark II, amidst their petty squabbling as to which program is superior, put their differences aside to treat their patient and come up with a plan to neutralize the Romulans and retake Prometheus. Back in the Delta Quadrant, Voyager, specifically her crew, anxiously await the Doctor's return. Both Janeway and Chakotay admit to holding on to hope all these years in the form of letters that they have been updating in case the Doctor's mission is a success. Tom, however, cannot wait until the Doctor is back because he is at his wit's end being the de facto medical officer, being the only other trained medic on the ship. Apparently, treating Neelix's customers for heartburn, thanks to his experimental chili recipe, isn't as glorious as piloting a starship. On the Prometheus, Ricard orders a course change and informs his crew that they're going to rendezvous with the Tal Shiar, who Ricard believes has the vision to apply the might of the Prometheus against the Federation. And he is right, as Mark II informs the Doctor that the Prometheus is the fastest ship in the fleet, and no other ship can catch them at a sustained warp 9.9. The plan now is to release neurazine gas into the ventilation systems. How? The Doctor will create a diversion on the bridge, while Mark II crawls into Jeffrey's Tube 17, where the gas can be vented rapidly throughout the ship. However, the Doctor's subterfuge is quickly discovered when pretending to scan the Romulan bridge crew for a fake disease, and trying to use this bluff as a diversion to access the environmental venting lockout. Ricard isn't fooled one bit, and takes the Doctor into custody for interrogation. On Voyager, Tom bemoans to Harry that he's tired of treating patients and begs his friend to create a new holographic doctor. Balana is an astrometrics, trying to further fine-tune the sensor alignment when Seven appears and berates her for interfering with her work. This being the last straw, Balana lets loose on Seven and tells her exactly how she and the crew feel about Seven's rudeness. But before they can resolve their issues, a transmission breaks through and reveals a heavily armored alien being who declares that they are intruding on Herogen technology and are unwelcome. Act 4. As Rakar continues to interrogate the Doctor, he believes that a hologram is incapable of this level of infiltration. However, Navala enters with proof of a Starfleet signature transmission entered into the ship's log at the same time the Doctor appeared in sickbay. The Doctor confesses the details of how he came to be on Prometheus, but his captors still don't believe him, and Navala thinks that a hologram extractor will be able to sift out the data they need to reveal the truth. Suddenly, the interrogation room is flooded with gas, knocking out the two Romulans. Mark II appears triumphantly, penning his own story of improvisation and bravery all the while. But they aren't out of the woods yet. 
they still have to turn the ship around and away from Rakar's rendezvous with the Tal Shiar. Easier said than done, even though the Doctor has seen his fellow crewmen, especially ace pilot Tom Paris, manipulate a helm control, it doesn't mean the Doctor knows exactly what he's doing. After staring at the controls intently, the Doctor presses a few buttons and voila, the ship comes to a dead stop, but beep, beep, beep. That's not good. Seems that in stopping the engines, the Doctor has started a warp core overload. No problem. A few deft commands on a nearby engineering panel and... Problem solved. No more warp core breach. Beep, beep, beep. Now what? Well, this next problem isn't the Doctor's fault. Three Romulan warbirds are on an intercept course with Prometheus. Back on Voyager, Seven and B'Elanna reestablish their link with a Herogen relay, and Janeway arrives just in time to try and negotiate a peaceful solution with a Herogen representative on the viewscreen. However, in order to expedite matters, and since negotiations were interfering with contacting the Doctor, Seven initiates a feedback pulse which literally shocks the Herogen unconscious. Well, hopefully unconscious. Janeway and B'Elanna are stunned, but B'Elanna is also impressed, giving props to Seven, who politely thanks her in return. In sickbay, things are going just as smoothly as Harry and Tom try to bring their emergency replacement medical hologram online. But as Harry warned Tom, it took a room full of Starfleet's best and brightest to make the EMH, and their version just doesn't work. Harry has a solution, though. He downloads all of Grey's Anatomy onto a pad, hands it to Tom, and tells his best friend to get reading. And if things on the other side of the galaxy couldn't get any worse, not only are the Romulans in pursuit of the Prometheus, but several other vessels have joined the fray. Two Defiant-class vessels and an Akira-class starship have arrived and begin firing on the Prometheus. Well, it appears that the previous hijacking of the ship was reported to Starfleet Command, and now all sites, literally and figuratively, are trained on the Prometheus. Act 5. As Prometheus is rocked by both Romulan and Starfleet weapons fire, Mark II desperately tries to hail any of the Starfleet ships, but the Doctor quips that Romulans have scrambled the comm systems. Knowing that they simply need to survive this encounter, the Doctor orders Mark II to engage the tactical systems and begin firing, but not at their own ships, as Mark II hits one of the Starfleet vessels. The Doctor and Mark II are out of options. Save one, the old accidental random button pressing on a console maneuver, which activates the multi-vector attack mode. The computer requests an attack pattern and target to which the doctor declares attack pattern alpha and both holograms yell Romulans to which the three separate Prometheus vehicles triangulate their fire and destroy one of the Romulan warbirds, causing the other two to bug out. As the smoke clears, two armed security officers beam aboard, welcomed by the two triumphant medical holograms. Back on Voyager, Seven detects a transmission coming through the Herogen network. And no, not the afore-shocked Herogen technician, but a signal from the Alpha Quadrant. It is the Doctor's holographic subroutine stream. Bellana informs Jadeway that the Doctor has safely returned. And with this news... During his debriefing, the Doctor, in his own loquacious and self-celebratory way, regales his friends about his adventures aboard Prometheus. But after the pomp and circumstance, he informs Janeway, Tuvok, and Chakotay that Starfleet declared Voyager and all hands lost. But, thanks to the Doctor's report, they have amended their records and made sure that he relayed to Janeway this very specific message. 
They said they would contact your families to tell them the news and promised that they won't stop until they found a way to get Voyager back home. And they asked him to relay one more message. They wanted you to know you're no longer alone. The end. All right. Thank you, Norman, for helping us relive the uh, the fun and frivolity and also the poignancy at the very end of Message in a Bottle. So let's get right into it. Uh, in the teaser, ah, mm-hmm. Balana, 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 Balana. I, I think you and I will probably have things to say in the next segment. But really, she she literally says to Chakotay, she goes, I'm telling you, Chakotay, if she gets in my way again, I'm not responsible for what happens. Except, Balana, this is me speaking, you are <laughs> you are responsible right. because uh, you're the chief engineer. You're an officer. You're part of the senior staff. Mm-hmm of this starship of 140 plus other people. So, um, yeah, uh, watch your words. I didn't mind the scene so much. I just mind, you know, it was that line that didn't, uh, didn't sit well for me, but I am glad that mm. someone else in universe said exactly what yeah. I said, maybe in the last two episodes that seven is rude. You know, she is Kurt. She doesn't have a lot of polish, but I know that that's the point, but I'm glad that yeah. in universe is acknowledged. Yeah, yeah, very true. Yeah, uh, short teaser, but I really like the ending of it. It was a nice way to end it with a cliffhanger with this shot of a Federation ship. Mm-hmm. I thought it was uh, it was very nice. So raise your hands if you think it's a good idea that Seven, on her own, just happened to commandeer supposedly quote unquote abandoned alien technology without consulting her captain or anyone else first. <laughs> I mean, I, I kind of think that in universe, maybe it just is there. It just shows up on the scan, mm-hmm. but it also seems like, oh no, no, we found it, and well, we she is just poking around, like, oh, what does that do? <laughs> what what additional information can I get now? Instead of saying, hey, there's a big communications array, what should I do? Right, but it's like the ship is what is the point of why she called them there, not this gigantic alien communications array, right? Yeah, I know, I know. Um, And I I know that it hasn't been mentioned yet, but I'm just kind of curious that I guess the Borg never encountered this kind of technology before because it's it's, it's literally like that kind of technology is like a moth to a flame to the Borg, you know? It's literally a giant Wi-Fi transmitter in space yeah, right right exactly it's like a mesh network thank just you that's right the, the corrosion everywhere. mesh network so yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> right i guess i'll have to rename my at home <laughs> uh mesh network because for years i mean literally ever since i set up my first wi-fi it has always been the andorian mining consortium that's good uh stay tuned a few years and you'll get that reference mm-hmm. but yeah maybe i have to change the herogen mesh network mm-hmm. had to get in the number 47 somewhere thank goodness janeway did it mm-hmm. <laughs> describing their coordinates and you know a bummer of a failed experiment hearing janeway's voice bounce back to them but i really like how just that moment sets up the urgency for the next set of decisions that get made right. so i thought that played out nice dramatically speaking of decisions that were made I don't think I'd send the only doctor on this mission with such a high risk. I, I'd maybe do like a quick holodeck recording of, say, Janeway, and then send that. I know that time is tight, 
Tight. But if they're only <laughs> it is tight. But if their only thought is like, let's take our only medical officer, legit medical officer, and just send him, and we don't know if he's coming back. I, I think there are plenty of other holodeck characters but, that you could. But use. John, if they didn't do that, then how would we see like Starfleet's ace pilot whine? In the yeah, yeah towards the <laughs> right. end of the episode, how yeah, we'd we'd be uh, yes, we'd be bereft of that. That would be tragic. What is it about? Like, so I just I just kind of came up with that observation on the fly, reacting to you. But now, when you think yeah. about it, both he and Bellana are the whiniest characters in this episode. Kind of whiny, yeah. Kind of whiny, yeah. Yep. Uh, what if the doctor was in the middle of a sensitive experiment when Bellana deactivated him? It's like, wait, hold on a second. One more drip and this entire vial will explode, taking the ship with it. No, nope, I'll just deactivate you. And she talked to Seven about being rude. Saying, Come on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, because these are the things that you like pay attention to. So when the doctor yes. went to astrometrics and then was beamed over to the Prometheus, he was wearing his yeah. emitter. And then when he beamed yeah. onto Prometheus, he was not. What happened to his, right. what happened to his emitter? That is such a good question. I went back and tried to trace that thing, tried to track it in the episode, and I couldn't. And it just because he, he had to get lucky that on Prometheus there would be hollow emitters, right. uh, which he, he makes a point of saying oh, you have them all over the ship. Sure. Well, of course we do. But Bellana walks in there with the mobile emitter, and then we never see it again. Yeah, it's just one of those. So you got to be consistent with this kind of stuff because it's kind of important. You do, right? It is. Yeah. It's critical to, to the episode. Yeah. Now, when they decide to send the doctor, and again, please just back up your data people. <laughs> it makes sense. Um, it takes very little time, apparently, to download him, I guess, from the ship's computer to the mobile emitter and then upload what I presume is a huge amount of information uh, as opposed to just a voice message of Janeway saying, hey, this is Voyager. But instead, they're sending a whole person with the combined uh, intelligence of Starfleet Medical all within him. So, And not to mention all the other experience that he has gained over time. Right. That has to be a huge amount of data. And as we close out the act, another great reveal to leave us in a cliffhanger for the what is yet to come. I mean, Romulans, because I did not see that coming, because we haven't seen Romulans in quite a while. Right, right, right. I will make mention of that later, because I think it's a really interesting detail yeah. with the tone of this story. The next scene, though, the opening shot of the Prometheus in flight through the screen is yeah. just stunning. Oh, my God. It's cool. You're going to hear a lot it's of my gushing cool. over the Prometheus. <laughs> yeah. uh, except for this yeah. one thing. Except for this one uh-huh. thing. The Prometheus bridge, it's so bright. And it's so car- I'm, I'm, It's so carpeted. <laughs> I'm right there with you. I'm right there with like, you. Yeah, I, I, I'll have things to say about yeah. that, too. Yeah. Um, and also, I don't want to be you know, the pedantic guy, but you, yeah. it's, it's USS Prometheus, the... You know, the computer says so, you know, and uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's the nomenclature is, you know, on the uh, L cars. Yeah. But it's an experimental ship. So shouldn't it have an NX designation? I thought it did. Did it? Did it not? I always thought is it, it was NCC? I always thought it was NX Prometheus, not USS Prometheus. Oh, no. It is USS Prometheus, but it is – but NX and then whatever the numbering is after that. Which, by the way, that's a trivia point that I didn't put in there, that on the monitor's – on board the ship that has a different registry number than what's on the hull. See. Because I guess the, the people who are doing the CG didn't get the memo. Uh, but, yeah. Obviously, I didn't yeah. either because I don't really know these. That's why I said I don't want to be pedantic because I'm not that guy. I just thought it was – I always right, thought it was right. NX 
something like NX Defiant or NX Enterprise. Oh yeah, no, yeah. no, no. It's a, I think it says USS, or, or in the case of Enterprise, well, we'll figure it out in a couple of years when we get there. But yeah. NX01 just Enterprise, right? Yeah, right. Uh, now, multi-vector assault mode. I'm sure that we'll have things to say about this. It's very interesting. Now, is it practical? I have to wonder. Like, are you building one ship with two drones? Are you building three ships? Like, what's the mechanics of that, and what is controlling what? Because it seems like at a certain point, you tell the computer, yeah, just just break apart and shoot stuff, right? <laughs> you know. So, who is in control at what point? But a very interesting idea for a ship, also known as Voltron mode. But here's yes, but here's the yes. thing, though. So, if this were created in Riker's time, would Riker just have the guts like he did in that episode where he just manually docked in an encounter at Farpoint, manually docked the battle bridge oh, to the saucer section? Because yeah. now he has to manually oh, dock two sections, two to one. Yeah, that would be. That would be interesting, yeah. yeah. And did they destroy that Starfleet ship? Uh, that was in Akira class, right, that we saw the kind of y- – y- the, the first one that the Romulans are, are shooting at. I don't think I, that was – because the second one was Akira class. The nacelles and the other one were different. Okay. One, yeah. But we saw an explosion. We did. And it just kind of goes out of frame. We don't actually see it destroyed. I do believe so. uh, Navala said that the, the, the ship was destroyed and then Rakan? Rakar. 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 He said yeah, that yeah. Uh, great first test of the Voltron yeah. system. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. And look, I, I know that we've beat this dead horse a million times about what the doctor can and can't do. But it is interesting that he's on, yes, granted a new ship that is Starfleet and housed by the computer on that ship presumably, but still is locked out of so much. It seems like his very presence there would integrate into like the comm system or whatever. But but yeah, I, I do understand the idea of protecting parts of the system. I get it. I get it. But, you know, he shows up and he's just kind of kind of helpless. You know, though, I thought it was really neat that it showed how quick on his feet he was when Navala, the Romulan, she comes in with her friend who was injured mm-hmm. in the uh, in the in the Voltron mode fight. Yeah. He says, you activated me as soon as you walked in. And she's like, yeah. how would she know? Like, she doesn't know. Right? Yeah. So, no, I love yeah. that whole scene. I, th- I think they're wonderful together. His covering for himself, mm-hmm. really good. I yeah. also like seeing the contrast between the doctor's uniform and Mark T's uniform. Because I like seeing that we're dealing with yeah. the two separate series that are happening simultaneously. The Dominion War yeah. and Deep Space Nine and then and Voyager, of course. But here's the thing that I really, really, really am so happy that that they were able to achieve. They were able to achieve the mm. right matching teal hue, H-U-E, mm. not the Borg hue, teal mm. hue <laughs> right. on Mark II's turtleneck and yeah. the doctor's uh, upper shoulder chest panels because usually mm. those things mm-hmm. are a little off yeah, they, from uniform to uniform. a little off, yeah. yeah. Yeah, very, very true. No, they, they look great together. And I like Mark II's introduction. I think it's good. And uh, when we get to the little verbal sparring, like uh, him calling Mark I the inferior program, mm-hmm. and, and of course, our EMH saying back to him, disengage your vocal subroutines. <laughs> like, this sets us up for a lot of fun. I think you can write pages of like just how great their, you know, their acting is together, their performances together. Yeah. It's, it's really fun to watch, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And a nice little bit of blocking to have the EMH Mark II reappear in a different part of sickbay 
when our doctor reactivates him. So he's activated, he deactivates, and you basically just have him physically move in the set hidden as you move the camera so you don't have to do a cut. Right. And then he just reappears. Really well done. I'm wondering, um, and I haven't really clocked this, but does the EMH always appear or reintegrate or rematerialize in the exact same spot as like their origin point? I don't think so. No? Okay. No. I, I, yeah. I, I think it just kind of shows up where it's convenient for blocking. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> Block <laughs> armor. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. And then, of course, the EMH Mark II says to uh, our EMH, the Romulans haven't gotten involved in our fight with the Dominion. Hmm. Mm. And I thought, you know, somewhere Captain Sisko mutters, hold my baseball. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. Yeah. 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 We have the line, I'm a doctor, not a commando. That was good. Nice. I like that. In yeah. the long litany of I'm a doctor, not a fill-in-the-blank. Right. We have a macrovirus shout-out. That's right. Very nice. Yeah, from Club Bro Med yeah. all the way back to Club Bro Med. Yes, all the way back Shout there. Out. And a new new piece of medical equipment, the thrombic modulator, Hey-o. which is is a great Alan Parsons Project tribute band name. So I'm claiming that. I think it's more like like industrial, you know, like industrial funk, you know. Oh, like, so yeah. it could be, or it could be like your maybe your Rammstein uh, yeah, tribute like band. A lot of trash thrombic candy modulator. Kind of, yeah, yeah, love it. Okay, cool. You got it. Take it. Um, it's yours now. It's it's strange to me though that okay so in the medical profession, you know scalpels mm-hmm. are scalpels, uh, sutures are yep. sutures. Um, you know uh, there are certain technologies that improve but don't really change. You really think the doctor is going to yeah. get thrown off by a piece of technology that he hasn't seen in like what one or two years, maybe yeah. three? Yeah, I, I I had thoughts about. That. I know it's just you know, I know it, <laughs> yeah. it's played for for comedy, but it's just mm, yeah. Um, yeah. Exactly. I did like the doctors and the Mark II's approach to what is and what isn't uh, applicable to the Hippocratic Oath. I thought that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also liked it when uh, the, the doctor said, you know, I was doing whatever it was when you were just a gleam in your programmer's eye, meaning Zimmerman programmed the EMH. So does Mark II's programmer look like Andy Dick? <laughs> yeah, I well, yeah. I wondered that, or did, or they just have somebody else that was a model for that, yeah. and is Doctor Zimmerman on that team? Right, you gotta wonder because he created the technology. Right. Um, back on Voyager, kind of nice, kind of interesting to see that they're talking about writing letters to home and to whom and, and all that stuff. And uh, Janeway writing a letter to somebody called Mark. Mark, you say we we've heard of him before. Well, Not in a long, long time that. Remark uh-huh. about Mark hit the mark <laughs> if the mark was Chakotay. Yeah, I, I think Chakotay was the mark in that, yes. Yep, yep. Uh, here's an idea for the Voyager crew. Uh, if you have heartburn, just uh, use a tricorder because they're everywhere and then uh, replicate some antacid in your quarters. You, you don't need to take up room in sick bay for that. Or energy, for that matter, from replicators. I mean, don't they have like a hypospray for antacids? Right, you, know? you would think. I don't know. Yeah. I, I like the idea that Neelix is planning a life on Earth where, first of all, he's there and he's a cook. And I kind of – I really appreciate his optimism about the doctor. Mm-hmm. Like, he's going to succeed. He's going to come back. And it was a nice little moment for him. Cutting back to our two EMHs, <laughs> you're not my patient, 
my first bit of good news. <laughs> <laughs> Again, the verbal sparring, wonderful in this. The uh, the whole scene about the extra subroutine, quote-unquote, innuendo, I thought was yeah. brilliant between those two, the way that they acted it. Yes, yes. And something that caught me off guard, because I, I did laugh out loud, when uh, Mark II was trying to c- crawl into the Jeffrey Tube hatchway backwards. <laughs> yeah. Hit, like yeah. Andy Dick's legs, the way that he contorted them, I thought it was brilliant. That's That's great physical comedy right there. That was a fun bit, yeah. Interesting to note, they do have chicken salad on Voyager. Now, I wonder if that's a ration, Mm. or do they have to replicate, like, a big, just a a whole bunch of it? But they do, you know, Tom recommends a chicken salad. Mm -hmm. I guess safer. Maybe the mayo is shelf-stable. I don't know. No tribbles. Um, They won't eat your chicken salad. Exactly. Now, now we, we flip the phrase... I'm a doctor, not a blank, but it's Tom Paris. I'm a pilot, not a doctor. That was good. About, about time he got to say that. And if Harry is an expert in holotechnology, which, really? <laughs> okay. Um, Still an ensign, where is but the, an expert in holotechnology. Yeah, right, right. Where is the template for the EMH? Like, it, I, I mentioned backups before, but is, is there just like part of it saves? I, I, I don't know. I, I don't want to get stuck on that. Right. Because we can't spend too much time there, we have to go back to the cold sniping between Seven of Nine and Balana. Look, Balana was Seven just a few years ago when it comes to her inability to integrate with the crew and her inability to be nice about giving orders. That 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 was you, Balana. That was apparently you. in the corridor. Balana was Seven just about what forty minutes ago. So just <laughs> right, not that not that long ago at all. Yeah. I do like the doctor's logic, uh, very flawless, about how the Romulans would deactivate him regardless if good. he cooperates or doesn't. Yeah, yeah. Nice, nice little bit there. And I like his comeback that paranoia is a way of life for you mm-hmm. and uh, very aptly sums up the Romulans. And I like the doctor trying to get under their skin a little bit. And I thought it was a, it was a fun bit that the EMH Mark II also has this like overindulgent <laughs> self-aggrandizing bit of telling stories. But our EMH should absolutely be used to that. I mean, he cuts them off. Yeah. But but that should be that just sounds like part of the programming. Like you do that anyway. I wonder if this the, it's kind of like the programmers adding a little bit of code to make sure that somewhere along the line someone gets credit for what they did. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Here's an interesting thing, though. Um, So when Mark II like slings like the Navala, the Romulan, off the table because she's unconscious. Yeah. You can actually watch the actor decelerate her fall as she's slumping to (laughs) the floor before she hits the back wall. Yeah. And if you were knocked out with that gas, she wouldn't be able to do that. You can actually see her like break her fall into like two or three different places before she settles on the ground. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah, they should have blocked that where that part of the floor was hidden. Right. You don't see so you wouldn't her, you know, see yeah, that. Exactly. Yeah. Now that that said, I love the total disregard for the organic life forms on board. They're just throwing oh, yeah, them yeah. around there and on the bridge, and you know that that that's fine. And a nice little effect of those two of both EMHs transporting themselves not not with the transporter, but but changing the hollow emitter location in mid conversation. Right. That was a, a fun little bit. And um, all right, now I know we're going to talk more about Prometheus, but. Um, I'm just identifying some problems here in addition to the carpet and bright lighting. 
apparently you can just start a warp core overload by pressing a few buttons. You just like boom, boom, boom. There's not a warning saying, do you really want to overload the warp core? It just happens. And then the telemetry, the feedback is terrible because it's just beeps without without a readout. I mean, at least the computer on Voyager has the good sense to tell you, like, warp core breach is imminent, you know, yeah. or, or tell you to do a thing, you know. Experimental starships, um, you know what I mean? You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's like, yeah, just, just, just beats. Yeah. They'll, they'll figure it mm-hmm. out. Don't worry about it. Apparently negotiating with Herogen, going nowhere. I, I, I applaud Seven's creative thinking. See, I thought that was really weird because – so you have – Yeah? Well, first of all, you're talking to this alien that you've never seen before and you're hijacking their yeah. tech, right? And then you yeah. have this armored face. With a very intimidating mm-hmm. voice. Now, it could be like a Baylock situation, you know, we don't really know. Or it could be like a Wizard of Oz situation, we don't really know. But you Sure, think, it could be an alcoholic baby behind all of that. You don't know. You know, you yeah. know and hopefully there's Tranya at the end of this. But you think maybe <laughs> caution might win the day here, you know? You, you would th- uh, although, uh, maybe giving Seven the benefit of the doubt, that's the kind of thing that would look like a natural problem to have. So it doesn't look like, oh, okay, I just got shocked by the people on the other end. It's like, oh no, my technology is failing. But mm, that's, that, that's, 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 that's a, it's a fair way of explaining it away, but I'm just like, I hope that guy doesn't walk up, you know, wake up on the other end and say like, yeah, we're at war. So uh, yeah, I think he's going to. You know to. what I mean? Um, so yeah, <laughs> yeah, raise your hand if you thought it was a good idea that Seven attacked the Herogen technician who she shocked <laughs> unconscious while Jenny was trying to make second first contact. I have to say the scene of Harry's EMH is just a lot of Bob Picardo standing perfectly still <laughs> and not blinking. And that must have been a serious pain to shoot. Uh, it, it was a, a fun little bit. And honestly, it, it, it seems to me, though, like just going to the holodeck and saying, computer, create a fully staffed sickbay, that would be a good place to start. Yep. You could just do that. But I, I don't want to. Sorry, I'm second guessing everything. EMH2's declaration, we're doomed. A little bit of uh, Dr. Smith vibes there, so that was fine. Nice to see some Starfleet show up, like a couple of Defiant-class ships. That was pretty cool. Yeah, I thought that... Okay, so the Defiant at one point in time was a a special ship. It's a a one-of-a-kind. Then it wasn't, and then you had Red Squad have their own, and now you have two more here, so... Are they just like Ugh, pro- Red Squad? Red Squad, Red Squad. Yeah, I know. Ugh, um, they're the worst. But are they just now being mass produced? I guess. I well, look, we we don't know the exact timing here, and, and I know that. Look, I, yes, we we do know the exact timing that it exists. Uh, but as far as when Defiant was created versus Valiant versus what other prototypes were in the works, yeah, the Sao Paulo so, afterwards. Yeah, yeah. So it is conceivable. You know, we don't see the names on those. True. But yeah, I mean, Defiant is special because it's Defiant. But and once they figure out that design works, okay, we're gonna, we're just gonna keep making more. Just like Ferrari. So in the midst of this battle scene, mm-hmm. the bright white and beige and carpeted bridge of the Prometheus, don't you think it's just a little too bright for a dramatic scene? You and I you and I both are going to fixate on this. I know it. <laughs> and it just feels like, I, look, Wrath of Khan got it right, where you dim the lights, you turn on the red lights. And I know that's hard to shoot, mm-hmm. 
but it just seems like he needed to do that. But even Voyager, like Star Trek series brightest bridge, illuminated brightest bridge mm-hmm. so far, and, and the next generation, that was very bright. Yeah. Those pale, yeah. <laughs> pardon the pun, yeah. pale <laughs> in comparison yeah. to how bright, like the Prometheus is, and it's a warship, right? So yeah. it's a little weird. So Yeah. Uh, and as we wrap it up, very, very short Act 5, lots of starships shooting at each other. And that's not a thing we really get on Voyager because, of course, they're not around other Starfleet starships, mm. certainly not Romulans. So that was kind of fun to work that into Voyager. I, I do have to say that uh, what's happening, though, the you know, the doctor, well, the two doctors, the two EMHs problems with Prometheus – speaks to the need for greater automation um, <laughs> on on a lot of the end of Prometheus, just, you know, waiting there for commands. But then but then it seems like it's a little too automated. Maybe we can get into that. Just like, what do you want me to shoot? Oh, just shoot those things. Oh, okay, cool. Then it just goes. AI, you know what I mean? um, right? A- a- right, right. Yeah, they're, they're predicting the problems with AI. But a really nice sentimental ending. And um, I, I like how they took this fun episode and then put a little uh, a little simple bow on it at the end for all of us. I can't help but notice that the EMH Mark One has to tell the Mark Two, "Don't stand so close to me." We'll get right back to Message in a Bottle after a word from this week's sponsors. So, John, here we are. It's a brand new year. Do you make New Year's lists as most people do? Uh, you know, kind of. Maybe not formally. Maybe even not putting down a formal list, but, but thinking in my head like, ooh, now is the right time to change a habit or or do something constructive and positive for myself i mean some things that people do i know i do is we take and take stock mm-hmm. of what we did in the previous year and kind of apply it to how mm-hmm. we're going to make changes in the new year there are certain things you want to keep the same about yourself and there are certain things you want to change in the new year it's a blank slate we can do whatever mm-hmm. we want there's a lot of promise there are things that you're really good at crushing you can you can crush organization you can crush diet Sometimes you need a little bit more help. You need something that makes something new for you. And around New Year's and a little bit past New Year's, we get obsessed with how to change ourselves. And instead of just expanding on what we're already doing right, what you're doing right is what you're doing right. You know, there's not much more you can do about that. Um, Maybe you finally organized one side of your house or your apartment have you done any of that, John? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, baby steps, baby steps. But, but I like where you're going with this yeah. because it's saying instead of like, oh, I need to change my life 180 degrees, it's like, well, wait, let, let's let's look at the things that we're already doing well mm-hmm. and let's grow from there. Right. Let's just build on that. Exactly, right? exactly. So there are yeah. the things that you do. There are the things that are routine. There are the things that make you better, but there are things that you can improve on and you can find better strengths to build on and you can – And you can do so in non-extreme ways. You don't have to do everything all at once at the same time. You can make small changes. You don't have to make extreme resolutions and make changes that actually stick. And this is where therapy comes in. And um, I am a big advocate of therapy. I I didn't start formally until a few years ago, but uh, I will say that uh, therapy has been there for me to get through some 
very difficult times in life, but it's also there as sort of a way to mentally reset and take stock and also sort of appreciate and celebrate the things that you are doing well. Uh, so it's not just there for the difficult times. Therapy can also be there to uh, uh, provide that support for your mental health in the best of times. Uh, so I'm a big advocate for that. And whether or not you, dear listener, have been in therapy yourself, there are benefits like, uh, like how about learning positive coping skills or how to set boundaries and empowering you to be the best version of yourself. So like I said, it isn't just for trauma or, or things that have upset and turned your life upside down. It can also be there to benefit you in very good times. So if you're thinking about starting therapy, I want to recommend that you give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It is designed from the ground up to be convenient and flexible and suited to your schedule. Now, all you have to do is fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched up with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash MissionLog today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash MissionLog. Norman, it's so coincidental that we were just talking about New Year's resolutions. Well, I'm going to tell you about another company that can help you get started on your resolutions, and that is Factor. Mm -hmm. So you are ready for the new year. Now, Factor's ready-to-eat meal delivery takes the stress out of meal planning and sets you up for success in the new year. Here's what I love to do. Skip the grocery store. Uh -huh. Skip the prep. Yeah, skip the prep work mm -hmm. and skip the cooking fatigue. Instead, here's what you do. You get chef-crafted, dietitian-approved meals delivered right to your door. With over 35 meals to choose from per week, including options like keto, calorie smart, vegan and veggie, and more, plus over 55 weekly add-ons, you'll have a ton of nutritious and flavorful options to kickstart your resolutions. By the way, Norm, before you tell us a little bit more of those add-ons, I love that because when I order, I'll do food and then I'll get some smoothies, keep those in those the fridge. Those smoothies are and, amazing. Oh, they're so good, right? Yeah, yeah. They're awesome. Yeah, so that's always my go-to, throw in some of those. Yeah, so you want to take the stress out of your life. You know, forget frantic lunch preps and rushed dinners because you don't know what to make or you're scrambling to get mm -hmm. stuff out of the fridge. Factor's two-minute meals are your secret weapon in this new year. So fuel up with fast and restaurant-quality meals delivered right to your door. Factor now offers loads of snack options like breakfast, smoothies, juice, oh, yeah. snacks. Blah, blah, blah. Breakfast smoothies or breakfast and smoothies? Sorry, Earl. Uh, breakfast and smoothies, okay. yeah. Factor now offers loads of snack options like breakfast, smoothies, juices, snacks. We love snacks. And mm -hmm. more to keep us going no matter what's on the schedule. So skip that overpriced takeout trap. It's convenient, sure. But it is expensive and it is a trap. Factor is yeah. cheaper. It's very, way more delicious. Take our word for it. Mm -hmm. Than takeouts. Get chef-crafted, restaurant-quality meals delivered right to your door. you got to love that convenience. They're ready to heat and eat in two minutes, which means more time for you because cooking takes enough time out of your day. 
Exactly. And look, and it goes further than that, too. I, let's say you need a special occasion meal. Okay, Gourmet Plus is the perfect solution if you're looking for that, uh, you know, fast upscale options done easily. And when things get hectic, Factor is flexible. You change up your order every week with plans from four to 18 meals per week or pause and reschedule your deliveries anytime. So stress less over meal times in the new year. Factors, no prep, no mess meals, free up time otherwise spent shopping, cooking, and cleaning. No more wasting time in the kitchen. Yeah, not only does Factor offer fast and simple solutions when we're too busy to cook, but they also help us stay on track of our goals, right? Because we're yes. in the new year. We have mm-hmm. certain goals. So with offerings yep. like Protein Plus and Keto, you, John, I, we can stay yep. on track. This is definitely going to come in handy for New Year's goals. Factor has everything we need for a week of flavorful, nutritious eats. And in addition to ready-to-eat meals, they have cold-pressed juices, smoothies. Oh, they're so good. Yeah, they're, they're, they're so, so good. good about those they, right now. Yeah, Energy bites, extra protein, <laughs> veggie sides, and more to keep all of us energized during these stressful times and especially during the in-between meal times. Yeah, so head over to factormeals.com slash missionlog50 and use our code missionlog50, that's 5-0, to get 50% off. That's the code missionlog50 at factormeals.com slash missionlog50 to get 50% off. Norman, we may approach this episode. That was very uh, Shatner of you, by the way, right there. (laughs) (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome. Uh, We may approach this episode and look at the comedy, the, the verbal sparring. All of that is a lot of fun. And... I, you know, what we do, though, is a little bit different. We need to look at morals, meanings, messages, and uh, see if in our discussion here, if that lands us at a point in the next segment. And I'm trying to think, like, what are the areas that deserve deeper attention? It's kind of played off just as a bit of business. I'll get to business in a moment. Just a bit of fun where we encounter Bellana and she still has this chip on her shoulder. And again, if anyone on board should know about taking time to acclimate to the crew and adjusting your style to match others, then it's definitely her. Yeah. So let me ask you, is it just prejudice about a Borg? I mean, because Seven even says that in in kind of a funny way, like, yeah, the crew's worried about me assimilating them. Yeah. (laughs) You know, But, but honestly, in this very short time, Seven has shown growth, but... It's not like Balana has reached out to her as a friend, just as an officer who corrects or criticizes her all the time. And I wonder, is it is there more to this than just Balana having problems with Seven personally? Is a little bit of uh, anti-Borg prejudice? What what is it that's going on? Is it Balana seeing too much of herself in? Seven's rather cold approach to things. I mean, this is like the first time it was like really like verbalized in in such a way. That's why I made mention of that in observations where I'm like, thank you Mm -hmm. that they actually acknowledge that more kind of like more in a pointed way than than any other time so far since Seven's been in the crew. You know, I mean, she's had her run-ins with like Harry and that's been awkward. I mean, Tom gave her like some really good leadership advice and 
you know, he yeah. even said that, you know, uh, you're new, but, you know, you'll acclimate. And if you need any help, I'll support you. And that was like, you know, a few episodes ago. But for someone like Bellana, we have seen her in, in this incredible arc of being, yeah, very rough around the edges, like Seven, you know, very caustic, you know, very um, combative, you know, very hard to get get along with, except for Chakotay. And I love that Chakotay pushes back and says, you know what? I'm tired of this. You're an officer now. Yeah. You've been here for four years as an officer. Grow up. Yeah. Right? I mean, right. I, right. you know, there's a, there's a criticism, you know, that we levy against characters, but sometimes you have to levy it against the writer for those characters. And I, I actually put that criticism on the writers because, like, that's hmm. not a – I don't think that's a line that sits well with Bellana, the whole I'm not responsible for what happens next. Of course you are. Like yeah. if, if all of a yeah. sudden you like you attack seven, is she being attacked by just what an idea, a wish? No, she's being attacked by you, like you did with Carrie in the very second episode of this series. Yes, right, exactly. What is she going to say to to, to Chakotay? If yeah. Carrie does something, I'm not going to be responsible for my fist going through his nose. Of course not, <laughs> right? So yeah. I I felt that that was a little out of line for Bellana. I think that I yeah sure the Borg prejudice is there, but then again, aren't we Starfleet? Aren't we supposed yeah, well, to be bigger and better and brighter and past all this? That's the whole point. It really is. And, and even in a maybe especially in a Starfleet right. structure, there is this perhaps fine line between, you know, being a commander, being a commanding officer, having people that are your subordinates who need to follow orders versus being a friend or being friendly at least because it seems that all the way back you know from from TOS forward there is this sense of camaraderie mm -hmm. where people aren't just numbers they aren't just functions filling a role we're we're led to believe that at least within the starfleet structure like people are allowed to excel because they are encouraged because they're given the room to grow and they're given the support by their senior officers and especially with somebody like seven who i think you know see also my criticism of how we've handled seven with harry seven is somebody who is very new but also could potentially be very fragile in this whole thing she has presented herself partly as a danger to the ship uh, if we don't really understand what's going on with her Janeway, at the very least, has made the effort to understand and give Seven the benefit of the doubt most of the time. That needs to also be expressed by the other people on her crew, especially senior staff sure. like Bellana. Yeah, and it's like it's a it's a, um, it's a management type thing. You know, you can't just yeah. you can't harbor all of these criticisms and emotions and reactions and just unleash it all at once that that is counterproductive mm -hmm. to helping somebody develop and grow and and learn how is seven yeah. supposed to do that if no one's actually taking the time i'm not going to be hypocritical about that harry has tried and again it's mm -hmm. not for the lack of harry trying to actually help her and advise her and give her leadership and teach her certain things i blame that on bad writing i'm sorry i'm gonna say mm -hmm. it because i have to say it Right, Because the opportunity is there for her to be able to grow, except that you're putting characters in front of her that aren't – you're not committing to their growth as well as hers. right? Hmm. And I think that's problematic. Like turn your actual leadership roles into leadership roles so that the person who needs to benefit from that advice can in turn, in, instead of turning it into an inside joke. 
See, here's what's interesting. It's been a whole episode back in season one, maybe, where Tuvok had to learn with his trainees how to be an effective commanding officer. Although it was a little strange because, you know, Tuvok is much older than he appears and he has had a lot more experience than maybe you would think at first blush. But he had to learn these command skills, these personal skills on top of just being an effective job function, Mm -hmm. you know. So we spent a whole episode doing that. And, of course, we had a lot of time for Bolana to grow and become more – confident and more competent in her role than just somebody who had this, you know, again, this maquis chip on her shoulder, and she's just going to come in and tell everybody what to do. What we're missing maybe in this episode is that, yeah, you have a moment where Balana comes to respect Seven, but it's only because of Seven's actions. It's not because of any effort on Balana's part right. to actually reach Seven on a personal level. A questionable action at that a questionable action, sure. Yeah. 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 It's like, oh, you did something tough. Okay. Well, yeah, but she probably would have done that anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. And maybe there's not an intended parallel here. Maybe there is, but I, it's interesting to me how bedside manner is a running gag in this show between the two EMHs. And then you have Harry's failed holo character. And that became kind of a conversation with him and Tom. And, and it's prefaced, all of that is prefaced by this bit with Seven or with Bolana saying, well, she's rude. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, maybe, but what does that actually mean? And what are you doing to reach out to her? But we've uh, we've already walked through all of that with the EMH and seen him grow, and now we get to go through it with another one. There is an old uh, axiom or adage or saying: "It is better. Is it better to ask for forgiveness than permission?" You know. And mm. mm-hmm. going back to like what you were saying, Balana does have a point. You know, she's talking about Seven to Chakotay. She says she may look human and she may sound human, but she's all Borg. Now, th- mm. there's a certain type of, um, I guess, bigotry towards that. But there's an, you know, there's also an expectation of, well, what do you expect is going to happen, right? She's Borg. Yeah, you know, right, she's not human. Right. She hasn't polished in, you know, with human mannerisms and and, uh, you know, pleasantries, you know, and just certain, you know, just pleases and thank yous, right? Mm-hmm. At the same time, though, we have gone through several weeks of episodes, and they mo- may equate into several months of Seven being on the ship. Big question is, is when will Seven learn to work within the system, right? Because, Mm -hmm. of course, I I applaud initiative, and I applaud her initiative with seeing the potential of this Herogen antenna array, but she didn't consult anyone on the ship before she engaged the technology. Yeah. I mean, there is a hierarchy of command on the ship, and Janeway has expressly said that when... At first, when Seven barged into her uh, ready room and said, like, you know, you're, you're taking too much time, you're exploring, you're putting yourself at risk. You know, this was at the end of Random Thoughts. And Janeway says, well, this is my ship. You know, I will, I will deem what is necessary for my ship. So if Seven understood that, as she admitted to at the end of that episode, then why doesn't she take these findings to the captain before she moves forward with making these decisions of using an unknown alien technology in order to do what is definitely a promising endeavor, for sure. I'm not, yeah. I, I am not criticizing right. that. But there is a hierarchy and a structure to follow. Right. Speaking of character changes, character growth, I, I think we're – I don't know if it's necessarily character growth or maybe it's just that the context is different. 
But let's look at our doctor, our EMH Mark I for a moment in this episode. So the way he explains himself to the EMH Mark II, the way he goes through the challenges of the Delta Quadrant, I thought it was really well done. It was very interesting because it's less about self-aggrandizement and more about his actual growth. Now, it's a little bit different. That's why I say maybe it's just the context playing out here because on Voyager, our EMH is, well, He's just like EMH Mark II in the respect that he would stop and go through the litany of all of his incredible accomplishments and make sure that he's bent every ear in his direction. Uh, but when he's with this other EMH, A, it's a one-on-one -on -one situation. B, it is a fellow hologram. So maybe that's the difference. And C, maybe it's just that I, he sees this EMH Mark II as the – younger neophyte that he needs to help nurture. Less follically so challenged. <laughs> Less follically challenged, yeah, yeah. But it, it changes the doctor's outlook a little bit. And it, it's nice to see. And you kind of wonder like, oh, is this what he's like now? Will he be like this when he comes back to Voyager? Was it just that he was challenged by the situation and that was the way he responded to that particular situation? Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned in the last situation, I, I do have to say that Voyager has only been gone for four years and uh, not even like three and a half years. Uh, that much medical advancement in only that amount of time, that, that would be a lot. In, in, in regards extent. to the technology that the doctor didn't understand yet. No, I get that. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. yeah, the the thrombic modulator or thrombic. <laughs> whatever. Thrombic. That's such yes, a good a great word. word. <laughs> good good word choice there. Uh, it, nobody, nobody in Starfleet Medical could keep up if even the EMH can't figure out what new equipment is what because he should just be able to size it up instantly, right. you know. So that uh, that was maybe a bit of a stretch. Um but it, here's what I like. I, I like the doctor explaining to Mark II, I socialize with the crew, fraternize with aliens. I've even had sexual relations, which leads us to hmm. an addition to my program, as he described it. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so at this point, Voyager has some, well, let's not call them sex jokes, but kind of uh, an interesting wink uh, to the audience about what has happened and what our EMH has been through versus what the other EMH has not experienced yet. And, and seriously, this became the question in my mind. What does an EMH need with sexual desire? And and is it just because that is an inherent part of human existence that it then works its way into programming an EMH? Because, of course, they are based on whomever was the, the, the human model mm -hmm. for that holodeck character. But it, these are moments that are, that are so short, and they're just played with a, a couple of lines and a couple of interesting – reactions that we get from EMH2 but but look at EMH2's fascination and envy and there's this like wistfulness that he has like well if it can happen to EMH1 it can happen to me right right but but this has to be a feeling it's it's almost like when we were picking apart data's feelings mm -hmm. 
a long, long time ago. Like, does data just inherently have those feelings? Are they an emergent property? Or was this something that was specifically programmed into him in order to have a fully human experience? Because the EMH doesn't necessarily need to have a human experience. He just needs to be good at being a doctor. But I found it so fascinating when it got to the idea of sex that this would be something that would literally stop him in his tracks. But bedside manner, like Harry said, is an important part about being a doctor. And I think that perhaps somewhere mm-hmm. in the subroutines or the algorithms of the program, these programmers like Zimmerman or whoever programmed Mark II needs to basically basically create some type of adaptive learning program where the doctor understands empathy from across different levels, like from a sensual level, mm. like from uh, a... a like an envious level, like what makes or drives the human condition to do what it does. And I do think that huh. it's it's really interesting that the doctor has grown so much of the four years because he's in such a concentrated environment of all of these different people that have all of these different raging emotions that are happening in their in their in their exile right. in the Delta Quadrant. You know, he deals with, you know, a, a, a very kind of um, you know testosterone forward Tom Paris and Chakotay, <laughs> right? You know, um, uh, yeah. someone who is like uh, who, who's longing to get back to the, her relationship <clears throat> with Mark with Janeway. You know, Neelix and Kess. You know, who are very much in love with each other. And, and you know, like the doctor is trying to yeah. understand and you know and deconstruct why this is important to connect with these people. And through that, he's learning how to be a better physician because he can now emotionally connect with his patients rather than just say, what's the nature of the medical emergency? Well, and that's our EMH one though, that is on all the time and and has far outgrown his programming. Uh, I, I guess what I'm trying to piece together here is EMH two, who is so new and presumably has only been activated a handful of times, you know, brand new ship, brand new program. Really, this is the field test. But there is something in EMH2's programming that makes him hear that EMH1 has had sexual relations. And this is something that he has experienced that makes EMH2 really go, wow, wait, you, you can and you have. And more importantly, I want that too. You know, that that is the implication, you know. If, if I can take it from like a racial and cultural standpoint, there have mm. been times, um, and I have had the the fortune of being able to I- enjoy certain things. And when say other people of my culture, other Filipinos of my culture, mm. see me like, and, and they're in like service industries on like either cruise ships or like tending bar mm-hmm. or you know waiting in restaurants, and they see me enjoying this lifestyle, they kind of ask mm-hmm. me like, "How did you do it?" And I'm like. This is, huh. this is how I achieved my goals. And there's a spark that you see in their eyes. They're like, well, if you can do it, I can do it too. I'm like, I didn't come from anywhere special. Yeah. I just worked hard, achieved, set goals, and fulfilled my dreams. You can do that too. And I think that's what the doctor was trying to inspire, at least by example, if not by purpose, that he was showing the mark too. Like, look, if provided the right environment, you can achieve what I've achieved for yourself and for your own experiences. So I think that's really neat. It was like where, where yeah. I think that Bellana failed seven in that regard. I think the doctor succeeded with Mark II in saying, you don't have to be exactly like me, but if you pursue these goals, you can achieve your own independence and your own experience and more robustness mm-hmm. for your own existence. Good point. Good point. 
hollow emitters everywhere and there's not an emergency holographic bridge crew? Seriously? Well, it's a good thing that we turned off like the, the experimental host program because I'm not exactly sure what that persona would have said about this episode, but that that guy was insufferable. He he needed to go away. I can't <laughs> wait. You're not the program. You're the real John, right? Wait, what? Am I? Oh gosh. Is mm. this the real life? <laughs> Is this just fantasy? <laughs> we already did that bit. Yeah. We did. So we're at the end of, you know, our coverage here of Message in a Bottle and as we do with all of our Mission Log episodes, we first take a look at does this episode hold up? Does this episode withstand the test of time? And then we finish our conclusion with morals, meanings, and messages if we have found any contained therein in this episode. So um, holographic program, John, if that is you, how did you feel about this episode? What did you come away with? I'll, I'll be, let's see, HPH, holographic program, uh, right? No, holographic Podcast host one. I'll be Mark one. Yes. That's a lot. Um, that's, a, that's a lot. That yeah. is a lot. It's too much yeah. to fit on a mm-hmm. t-shirt. I, I will say that I've got some mixed feelings about this episode. Um, and I remember looking at this one very fondly, kind of retrospectively. But here we've arrived at this episode mission log. Try to look at it with a fresh perspective. Watch it a few times to let it all sink in. It, it is very entertaining on one level. But I also don't necessarily think that that entertainment value has a lot of playback value for a replay value for me. So once I see Andy Dick and the interplay between EMH1 and EMH2, I'm, I'm kind of good with it. And I don't need to see it again right away. <laughs> you know what I'm mm-hmm. saying? So regardless of what one may think of Andy Dick, I just think it's a character that is best served here as the one-off that it is. And and I wonder if they had considered at the time a different personality type for a new EMH. I mean, look, obviously Andy Dick brings a bit of Dr. Smith to his performance, uh, which is fun, and he's doing a bit of Andy Dick shtick as he's doing it. But you have EMH1 and EMH2, and they're both a little prickly, and they're both you know, self-aggrandizing and all of this stuff. But I, I wonder if they played with the idea of making him very different in order to play against Do you Bob. think it would have been too much if they brought in Sid? Because Sid was the original pattern for the Ooh. first holographic Doctor back in Deep Space Nine. And this is before this timeline. Boy, that, oh, that would have been really cool. That would have been really interesting. And I wonder if our EMH then would have learned something from yeah. him. But, you know, what's interesting is, uh, okay, once you create the character, it's like the Kirk-Spock dynamic. Spock was played differently when he was paired up with True. Tyke in the yeah. cage. And then he became a different character up against the more emotional and dynamic performance that Shatner gave right. as Kirk. So here I think... Bob Picardo has to attenuate his performance a bit to fit what Andy Dick is giving as EMH2, mm, mm, mm. or as EMH2, yeah, yeah, as yeah. EMH2. Yeah, so I, that that was a sort of a, a thing that I think was fun, but again, I, I, don't, I don't know how much replay value that really has. 
then, okay, uh, another thing that I love about this episode, I love that it is directly relevant to the central mission of Voyager, which is to get back home. And it's nice to see Seven involved in that effort and the urgency given to it at the top of the show, given that we last encountered a good Romulan back in Eye of the Needle. <laughs> it's fun here to go back to the opposite side of the Romulans and see that with some real intrigue in the Alpha Quadrant. So that's a nice way to tie those stories together uh, with Dominion War. All of that, very, very cool. Okay, but that said, <laughs> what I also don't really like in this episode is that it feels like we are padding a lot of these scenes with a lot of business. There's business between the two EMHs. There's business with Tom and sickbay. There's business with things going wrong on the Prometheus. It's just a lot of business. <laughs> and maybe what I needed was a couple of more scenes of poignancy. But we really do get that lovely moment at the end of the episode. So I'm, I'm kind of, I'm lukewarm on this. Like, I honestly, I really do enjoy it. I, I think it is both a fun diversion and a reminder of the central mission of the show. But I can't say that I'll leap to this episode again very soon in a rewatch. Mm -hmm. And and uh, very much to your point earlier on, Norman, Prometheus is very cool, but I feel like that interior is already so dated compared to Voyager's Bridge, which I think still really holds yeah. up. So, yeah, uh, yeah this is a little bit of a problem with the design scheme there. Uh, but uh, what are yeah. you going to do? All right. Mm -hmm. So how about you, Matt? Okay. So uh, you may have noticed, uh, dear listeners, that I have a huge bias, um, not in this episode, <laughs> but towards the design of the Prometheus. I think yes. it is literally one of the most gorgeous ship designs ever to grace Star Trek <laughs> of any series. And special thanks and special credit to Rick Sternbach, who designed the Prometheus. I do believe in, in reading the the Eagle Moss magazine that comes in with the ships that mm -hmm. this design was an extrapolation of an unused Voyager design proposal created by Rick Sternbach, yep. uh, especially the very distinctive and sharper spear-shaped tip outer main hull compared to Voyager's yeah. softer, curvier main hull. So I'm, I'm glad that I really love I really love the aggressiveness, uh, the way the ship looks. <laughs> it's cool. And it's very I cool. remember the first time I watched this uh, years ago, and I, I, I texted Char, and I said, wow, this is like this multi-vector attack mode. I've never seen this before in Star Trek. This is so neat. And it's because I love all things Voltron, as I mentioned earlier in Observations. As for the episode, yeah, I do believe that the success of this episode really hinges on Bob Picardo and Andy Dick who were essentially this holographic pairing of these great comedy legends like Abbott and Costello, or if you're yeah. Muppets fans, Statler and Waldorf, right? You know, yeah. or Martin <laughs> yes. and Lewis. Yeah. They just had this wonderful, yeah. dynamic, complimentary, yet acerbic quality. They played marvelly against each other. And I really do think that it really showcased not just Picardo's talents, but how far the Doctor actually has evolved through the course of his story arc and how we see that reflected yeah. in the eyes of this new experimental 
prototype, this EMH2, who is just starting his life and starting his career and starting his experience and his evolution. So I thought that was really well played. I thought that the two played off each other really well. What great scene partners that they are. And I, I really think that it was smart that they, again, you've mentioned this before, for whatever like, you know, personal opinions you have of Andy Dick as the performer, as the character mm-hmm. of the Mark II, I think that he was perfectly cast just to show the difference of the physicality between these two and how different they are. Because the scene where Mark II tried to step backwards into that Jeffrey's tube, <laughs> I was yeah. crying. I thought that was so funny. I <laughs> thought that Andy Dick played that perfectly. And you know what? If that's one of the more complimentary things I can say about this episode, then so be it. Yeah. I also thought yeah. that was interesting that in the two times that we saw Voyager's lifeline of hope in the form of a compressed data stream tossed towards the alpha mm-hmm. quadrant, that lifeline both times in eye of the needle and in this episode were snagged by Romulans. Right? Yes. Yeah. So I thought that was a nice way to, to bookend yeah. season one's eye of the needle. Although I have to say that Von Armstrong's performance as the main Romulan in that episode was Ugh, so far good. superior to Judson Scott's performance in this episode. Judson Scott, you're saying his is superior. His <laughs> oh, John. <laughs> now I know you're the hologram. I know you're the hologram. The real John <laughs> Champion. I don't know where he is, but would have never gone for such low yeah, hanging fruit. But uh, that was no. that was beautiful. No. That was perfect. And I, I thought the episode was fun. <laughs> I thought it was visually glorious. I thought um, that the performances were great. I think it does hold up well because it has the right mixture of story and uh, characterization. And I think that they're very well paced and balanced well. Now, I agree that will I go and say, hey, you know what? I'm going to rewatch this like anytime soon. Probably not, except for mm-hmm. the Prometheus. I, I, I just I can't yeah. get I can't get enough of that <laughs> you, shit. You I can't it. get enough of that shit. <laughs> ben Robinson sent all me sent all the products my way. Yeah. <laughs> right. 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 So, so we we both agree that it is fun, but we always have to ask: Is there a moral? Is there a meaning? Is there a message? And I, I keep coming back to the same word. Like the fun thing about the episode is that it's fun, and, and I'd argue that you know we we change our characters a little here in order to serve the drama, but that's okay. What we're serving though is it's a bit of a romp where we challenge the characters in some new-ish ways, the Doctor into becoming this, you know, strategic commander, and Balana into being an officer who has a little more maturity, I hope. Um, Seven into being nice, although I don't know that we necessarily get that. She just sort of succeeds. And then Tom, you know, Tom takes up a challenge of medicine for real, potentially, maybe, Mm -hmm. and Harry into learning some heavier programming. So that, that that's all fine. Like everybody gets to stretch a little bit. Now, the question is, will these things stick? Maybe, maybe not. I think in the end, we get to see them navigate ways to stretch beyond their comfort zones and, and maybe just maybe be a better version of themselves the next time around. I hope. I guess we'll see next week in the next encounter between Balana and Seven. That's really what I'm waiting for is like, can they? Can the maturity stick? So uh, we'll see. How about you, in Norman? The, any, like, any lessons? Like, in this corner, uh, we have that? the Borg Basher. And in this corner, we have the Klingon <laughs> Crusher. <laughs> right. right? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah, there you go. That, that's it. Funny thing is, is that I think 
the only real issue I have with this episode is that I didn't really see a moral meaning or message really kind of crystallize for me in this episode. Yeah. But the yeah. thing is that it doesn't always have to be that way. I mean, like that's obviously that is our purview as mission log, you know, to find these things. But not every mm-hmm. episode is going to have them, or at least as as obvious as as some other episodes. I think perhaps the lessons that both Seven and Bellana learned in this episode they're noteworthy in in, in some respect, right? I appreciate that Bellana was able to express her frustration, like with Seven's rudeness. And not in the way where she said, like, I'm not going to be responsible for my actions, you know, come what may. I mean, I thought that that line to me still, I thought was ill written, you know, so and it didn't do anything yeah, for Bolana's yeah. character who has evolved so much over the last four years. I thought that was uncharacteristic of her to say at this time in again, in her evolution. I don't yeah. think that she was unprofessional the way that she expressed herself to Seven. And I think that Seven needed to have that kind of directness in order to understand why exactly the crew was so, you know, they're so standoffish and cold to her because you are this rude, you're, 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 you're kind of like you're, you're irascible, you're, you're irritating, you're standoffish. And I think that Seven doesn't understand why until people explain to her why, right? I mean, how would she? Mm-hmm. Like the Borg don't have emotions. They don't interact. They don't have feelings. They don't have protocol. They don't have boundaries. So until you understand what those are, what those actually mean, she's never going to understand them. So someone actually has to say yeah. that. And it's very hard to do. I mean, I know that Blonde is not 100% human, but for human beings, confrontation is very difficult, right? Especially yeah. from a managerial standpoint. Yeah. Believe me, I had to do, like in a previous job, I had to manage five. <laughs> and everyone has personalities. Yeah. Everyone has emotions. Mm-hmm. Everyone has reactions. Mm-hmm. Everyone has very interesting nuances <clears throat> to the way that your management style is. So... I understand that. And I think that was actually well done. But Jerry, as always, brings her A-game to the episode. The nuances that she has, yeah. the glances that she has, the facial tics that she has, the way that she behaves, the way that she reacts. I am so glad. I'm going to put this on the record. I am so glad that she is not just eye candy. I am so oh, glad yeah. that she yeah. is so good in her craft mm-hmm. as an actor. Because... Yeah. If she weren't, we'd be having different conversations about Seven of Nine, right? <laughs> but I guess like yeah. maybe the other message could be don't shock the unknown alien who has now been alerted to your presence and may have taken Seven's act of aggression as an act of aggression. Let's see how that plays those, out. That, those are words to live by, a, a, a lesson to be absorbed, truly. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. If you'd like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash mission log for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. And for more Star Trek news and discussion, visit trekmovie.com. On the next Mission Log, Hunters. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11. Online at warp11.com. Special thanks to consulting producers, Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Schabel, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. Now that he's overheard the message in a bottle, 
Let's hope the Herogen isn't sending out an SOS. Sending out an SOS. Sending out an SOS. Sending out an SOS. And transmission. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.